Hello, ladies, and welcome to the Legacy Homeschool Reflections podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Adams, author of the books, Legacy Reflections of a Homeschooled Homeschooling Mama, A Legacy of Faith for Young Ladies, and the brand new Word Study Scripture Writing Journals for Ladies. If you are new here, I am a homeschool graduate from the vintage days of the homeschooling movement. I have been married to my husband, Matt, for 20 years, and Matt and I are the parents to five daughters and two sons. Throughout my life, I have been inspired by the missionary story of the lives of Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, missionaries to Ecuador. And I recently had the privilege of interviewing their daughter, Valerie Shepard. Valerie was so gracious to record with me for two separate episodes, so this first one today is going to focus on her heritage and the story of her parents serving the Lord and His kingdom purposes. I didn't ask many questions, but instead just let Valerie share the story of how God used her parents and the legacy of faith she grew up in. It was beautiful to sit here and just listen to her tell the story, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. Then I invite you back for next week's podcast where Valerie and I shift gears and talk about motherhood. Valerie is the mother of eight children, and she had many encouraging insights to share. So I really hope that you will come back for that follow-up episode. For today, I think you will greatly enjoy hearing Valerie tell the story of her parents' devotion to Christ, their love for one another, and the way God used their lives to spread the gospel and build His kingdom. This is a real treat, and I think you are going to be blessed. Now, Elizabeth Elliott, Val's mother, used to have a radio show called Gateway to Joy, and I can still hear her saying, you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. I heard her say that over and over as a young lady, and it is forever fixed in my memory. Ladies, we are living now in some uncertain times with all of this pandemic going on around us, and what a comfort we can take from that picture of God's everlasting love and arms to hold us, protect us, and guide our way. Valerie Shepard was the only daughter of missionary parents Elizabeth and Jim Elliott. She graduated from Wheaton College in 1976 with a BA in English Literature. She married Walter Shepard and has spent 42 years being a pastor's wife, raising eight children, homeschooling, and teaching Bible studies. They now have eight grandchildren and their adult children now live from California to the UK. Their 44th anniversary is coming up in May. Valerie and Walter's ministry has been one of hospitality, leading prayer meetings, and learning to live in God's grace with joy. She has shared some of the radio ministry called Gateway to Joy with her mother on the Back to the Bible Broadcasting Network. Valerie published a book about her parents' courtship, which came out in February 2019, called Devotedly. So without further ado, let's jump into my discussion with Val. Welcome to the podcast, Val. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, one thing that I treasure from my upbringing is being taught about the lives of various heroes of the faith, and your parents, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, 
have been an inspiration to me for decades. And it has also been such a sweet blessing to be able to share the story of what God did through your parents with my own children. But I realize that there are people out there who have never heard the story of how your father gave his life for the sake of Christ and how okay. Her life into furthering God's kingdom. And I was wondering if you would give us a bit of the story of your parents' legacy. Sure, I'd be happy to. My mother and father both grew up in strong Christian homes, my father in Oregon and my mother in New Jersey. They met each other at Wheaton College, my mother's junior year, when they happened to have a Greek class together and then. My uncle, my mother's brother, invited my dad to come home for Christmas with him. So my mother and he got to spend some time together, not necessarily always alone, but definitely did talk late into one night, I think right before Uncle Dave and my father went back to Wheaton. And my mother was, of course, going back to Wheaton too, but they didn't happen to go all at the same time. And... In the Greek class, uh, my father noticed that my mother was very serious about her studying and noticed that she said something about scripture that impressed him. He had always prayed for a wife that would, that would be serious about the Lord. But he had been telling people at Wheaton, Wheaton College in Illinois, that there was no time for dating while you were at Wheaton. We all needed to be, that they all needed to be working to get their approved unto God degree, A-U-G degree. Instead of worrying about the B-A or B-S degree, they should be seriously seeking God, his will, his glory as they study, and that there wasn't time for dating. Yes. And he was very bold and kind of brash about that, would either tease or scold people that were doing that. And then he asked my mother to study with him because he could tell she was very good at Greek. They began to study together, I think, in April of my mother's senior year. Um, yeah, I said it was her junior year. It was my dad's junior year, but my mother was a senior at the time. Mm -hmm. And as they studied, uh, the nights began to be more and more towards her graduation and they both realized that they were falling in love. And nobody had questioned my dad about studying with her until my uncle, who was his roommate, right before graduation, my mother's graduation, he stopped him as he was rushing out the door and said, where are you going every night? <laughs> my dad said, I'm going to see someone. I'm going to study. But he didn't say, I'm going to see your sister. And my uncle right away said, you're going to see my sister, aren't you? Here you are telling everybody not to date and you're going, you're going to study with my sister. That's pretty much a date to me, something like that. And uh, people laugh about that, but I'm sure my father was struggling with the issue that he had told people not to date. And here he was in love with my mother. So they had some long walks together and the only actual date quote unquote, was a trip into Chicago to go to the Moody Bible Institute, huge evangelization or missions conference. And it was a very moving conference. Both my mother and father had known since they were in their teens that they wanted to go to the mission field. 
And so they had a good time as far as just really being convicted that they needed to get over to the mission field as soon as possible. My mother had grown up reading, at least through her teen years, had read Amy Carmichael books. And Amy was a missionary in India for 55 years. She was a single missionary and she never went home to Ireland to see her parents. She was totally committed to the people of South India. And so these books had made a huge, uh, had given a huge or had had a huge effect on my mother. And she really thought she was going to be a single missionary. She had gone to several weddings where she, for a while, had thought, oh, I can't wait or I hope someday I can be a bride like that. And then she'd gone to a couple in her senior year and she realized when she came home that she was perfectly satisfied to have only the Lord as her husband didn't think she could, didn't think she needed to get married. But the last, last couple of nights around graduation, um, on one of them, my mother and father took a long walk and ended up in a cemetery, which is significant because my father was talking to her about his desire to go to the mission field. And he said, I have fallen in love with you, but I think that God has told me that I'm supposed to be a single missionary. So I don't know, I don't think he used the phrase, I don't know what to do with that, but they actually didn't really know what to do about it. So they sat in silence. My mother was stunned that he actually proclaimed his love to her and he, she had been taught by, his fa- by her father with her four brothers that a man should not ask a woman to marry him unless he is ready. No, the man should not ask, should not tell a woman that he loves her unless he is ready to ask her also to marry him. So it was shocking for my father to say that to her. And she had it set in her mind that that's the way it should be, that if a man tells you he loves you, he's also going to ask you to marry him. So they sat in silence as my father said something about that our feelings had to die because Christ was their Lord and their master. And as they sat, the shadow of a cross from a tombstone with a tall cross on it fell right between them on the ground in front of them. It was a full moon that night. Wow. And they both sat in complete silence as they contemplated what Christ had done for them and what they must do for Christ. And yet they both knew in their heart of hearts that they wanted Christ first, but they were both in love with each other. My mother did not say I love you to him at that point because she didn't feel he had any claim on her if he was not going to ask her to marry him. So um, their correspondence did not begin until the fall of my mother's year when she went to Plymouth Bible Institute up in Canada. She had suggested that they lay their relationship at the foot of the cross and that they not write any letters. So for 15 weeks, they did what they needed to do at their own homes, uh, whether it was helping in the family Uh, around the house or it was teaching Sunday school. Uh, My father led a youth group for a while and there was much to be done, but they did not write. And then my father wrote, as soon as those 15 weeks were up, he wrote to her first. And then for five years, they carried on a correspondence at times turbulent because my father wanted to hear more endearing words from my mother But she was a very logical, non-sentimental person. And even though she knew in her heart that she loved him, she did not feel that she had any right to say anything about her love for him. 
So at times the letters could be a little sarcastic or a little bit biting because even though they understood in their my mother's senior year, the last month or so, that they their minds and hearts were on very much the same plane. Their hearts were totally given to Christ. They were both willing to die to themselves. And their love for Amy Carmichael, as well as many wonderful hymns, as well as scripture, had given them many, many conversations because they had so much in common spiritually. Both of them had grown up in homes where their Bible was read at least once a day. In my, I know in my mother's family home, it was read twice a day. And it was always very regular and very um, serious. And they always went to the parlor for their family devotions. And only the, the dad prayed. Nobody ever prayed out loud, but they always sang a hymn. <clears throat> Whereas in the Elliott home, they sat at the kitchen table, either after breakfast or after supper, and they talked about the Bible. Grandpa Elliot would, of course, um, expound on it, but everybody could add questions or comments, and it was a long discussion with the Elliots. So as my aunt said one time, the Howards had their devotions in their parlor with everything put away, whereas the Elliots had their devotions among the breakfast crumbs. <laughs> That's great. Two very different families, but also very committed families to Christ. So in five years, my mother and, and father saw each other only five times. The last two times they saw each other, <clears throat> 1951 and 52, excuse me, 1948, <coughs> excuse me. The first time they saw each other, my mother stopped in Wheaton on her way to Plymouth Bible Institute in Alberta, long train trip. She was about three or four days in Wheaton, visited my father, and they talked about their journals. And then uh, she probably visited a few other people that she knew. But anyway, the main reason was to see him. She had asked him if it was okay if she stopped by to see him as he had started school. And then she went off and sent one postcard to him on the way, and one said, miss you, that's all it said. And then the second postcard said, more. <laughs> so sometimes my mother would give little hints of how much she loved him, but she would not say, I love you or anything else about marriage because she knew her. my father had been committed to going as a single missionary. And the main reason he thought that, one was because of Paul saying it was better to be single. And two, because this doctor missionary had come to Wheaton to speak to Wheaton students about the need in Ecuador to have missionaries among the Quechua Indians and among the Auka Indians. The Aukas are now called Waodani. They were a primitive savage tribe. And Dr. Tidmarsh had told my dad that women could not really live in the Amazon jungle. It was just too tough. Mm, yeah. So it was for men. So that's where my father, besides reading Paul and from his own father's advice to stay single when he went to the mission field, he, he had this set idea that he's going to have to spend a few years in the jungle by himself to, to see if that's where God wanted him. He was quite sure that God did want him among the Quechua Indians, but he was really desperate to go to the Aukas. And he had had several 
premonitions and prayers that the Lord would take him to the Alcas and premonitions that he would die young. In his journal, that's, there is a book called The Journals of Jim Elliott. And you will see several different times when he mentions the Aukas. That's spelled A-U-C-A-S. So it looks like Auka, but it's pronounced Auka. It means savages in the Quechua language. That's the other tribe my mother and father did start with. But anyway, um, when the Aukas became Christians, they said, we don't want to be called the Quechua name for us. Savages, we have stopped killing we're going to follow God's trail, but I'm I'm going ahead of my story. Anyway, each of the times that my mother and father saw each other, so 48, 49, 50, and 51 were four. And then the fifth time, they were actually in 1952 in Ecuador together. So as I said, there was, there was some turbulent mail uh, letters, and there were also some very wonderful letters. So when I discovered that my mother had given me all of my father's letters and I realized I had my mother's diaries from those years. I thought I could put a book together, but my mother had told me that all of her letters had been destroyed. She did not remember that at least four of the years she had the letters in the Ecuador trunk in her attic. And so I found them after she died in 19, in 2015, I went there in 2016 and, found those letters, which was an absolute miracle because I really thought they were all gone. And I'd been trying to start on this book with no letters from her, which was very challenging because they carried on such a good conversation. The Lord had preserved them. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the neat thing is, um, so once I got them, of course, I, I kept reading these wonderful letters, very spiritually minded, very serious letters, but also there was a bright sense of humor in both of them. And they could be uh, they were excellent writers, both of them, and they quoted classic writers as well as Amy Carmichael or hymns. So their letters showed their parallel thinking, both spiritually and intellectually. That's maturity for people of that age. Yes. And if and so I was able to put a book together uh, last year. It was published in February of 2019. And I was very thankful that Lifeway that is um, Broadman and Holman Publishing, was able to publish it for me. They, they were the ones that offered the idea to me of, of uh, taking my writing and putting it into a book. So it is called Devotedly, The Personal Letters and Love Story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And I'm very, very, very thankful that I had three friends who helped me tremendously. And I had the Lord, of course, pushing me on because... It was a very big, challenging job <laughs> to write the book. But I'm not complaining because it was such a privilege to read through these letters over and over and my parents' journals. Oh, and it turned out so beautiful. I have a, a copy that just recently arrived, and I'm so looking forward to reading it. And it is just a beautiful book. Thank you. Well, God be praised for that. And I trust and pray that uh, a lot of young people will read it, even non-Christians, because if they're looking for a love story, it is quite an unusual love story. And the correspondence, of course, was practically every two weeks, almost one to two weeks, they were writing to each other. And there was that another period of, of not writing much. What my father suggested after 1949, they had a visit in Oregon. My mother went to Oregon to visit his family. And at that meeting, they were all the more in love. But again, my mother didn't say, I love you. And 
And it was at that time that my father said, I think we need to pray that God will not let us see each other again until there is more assurance that we may someday be able to be married. And so my mother did not write much at all, and he didn't either. But when they did write, there was still that affection and spark in their letters. Um, As I said, sometimes there was some coldness from my mother. Um, I think my father was a very spontaneous, emotionally charged man. And I think my mother was emotionally disciplined, though she had a huge vulnerability and sadness in her heart. She would not show that to people. So these letters are quite something. And then um, my mother's third husband, my mother's second husband died after four and a half years of cancer. He was my stepfather. And then her third husband, she married after I married my husband. And he is living in Little Rock, Arkansas. So when he moved from Massachusetts to Arkansas, the people who helped him move, a couple have kindly taken him under their wing because he really doesn't have much, doesn't have any family. Um, They found the first year of letters. So what I discovered when I started reading my mother's letters is that it was all 19, the half, second half of 1949. So all of my father's letters to her in 48 and 49, I didn't have any answers from her. And yet, this couple found them in a different place. They were not in the Ecuador trunk. And so now I have all the letters from her first year where she's writing to him, of course, and he's answering her. So it's pretty amazing. So that was putting a lot of puzzle pieces together for you. In the- yes, yes. Yes. So <clears throat> my father kept on praying very seriously about going to Ecuador. First, it was going to be Peru, and then it was Ecuador because of this doctor he, whom he had met that worked among the Quechua Indians. So he arrived in um, March, uh, late February of 1952 in Quito, and all missionaries had to read, had to learn Spanish first. So he stayed in Quito, and two months later, and it was that fourth visit in 1951 that convinced both of them that they were both supposed to be in Ecuador, but not necessarily missionaries to the same Indians. So Up until that time, my mother had thought she might go to India first, and then she thought she might be going to Africa, and then she thought she might be going to South Seas. But each time the door closed in those particular opportunities and the door opened for her to go to Ecuador. So she arrived two months after my father arrived in Quito. And then they had almost six months in the same city together where they took the Spanish class and they lived with two different Ecuadorian families and they got to take hikes up the Andes Mountains around Quito, and they did a lot of picnicking and hiking and meeting at other people's houses for dinners. And, you know, it was quite everybody's love to talk about uh, their relationship, but they weren't holding hands. They were (laughs) still in this limbo. And even during that summer when they would take these walks, one time my father said to my mother, it might be another five years before I know for sure that we're supposed to get married. That was devastating to my mother because of course, getting to Ecuador and being with him for several months daily was agonizing. Right. Um, so, so he went off to the Quechua Indians and uh, within another month or so after he left in August of 1952, 
she went off to the Colorado Indians on the western side of the Andes, and he was on the eastern side of the Andes, which is where the Amazon jungle is. So they wrote letters, and sometimes they got to talk on the radio, and sometimes they used code, especially if they were going to see each other in Quito, which was supposed to happen two different times during that first year, but actually it only happened once. And in the time that it did happen, it was because my father sent a telegram saying, meet me in Quito. And of course, my mother got on a horse and then a truck and then a bus. I think it took about six to nine hours to get to Quito from where she was. Uh, no planes went out from where she was, but my father took a plane from Shelmetta, which is where the Missionary Aviation Fellowship uh headquarters was and he took a plane from Shalmeta to Quito and anyway that's when my father asked her to marry him and that was January 31st 1953. So they didn't get married until October 1953 both of them went back to their jungle stations. Uh, still my father was not sure about leaving his single missionary brother not not blood brother but a brother he had invited and asked to come down to Ecuador his name was Pete Fleming. So Pete and my father were working among the Quichuas during those nine to 10 months uh, before my father got married. Actually, it was almost a year before my father married my mother. My mother was with the Colorado Indians for about seven or eight months. And then when, once they got engaged during that seven or eight months, uh, she, my father said to her, I can't marry you unless you learn Quichua because I think that's where we're gonna end up living. And he'd also realized that my mother had a very strong constitution and was not athletically gifted, but very physically strong. And so she was living in this jungle among the Colorado Indians and was able to do all kinds of things at, uh, of course, it was a low altitude, but seeing her hike in the high altitude mountains of Quito made him impressed that she seemed to never tire and never got sick. And she literally was that way the rest of her life. I mean, maybe she had the flu three times in her life. She said that all of her brothers and sisters and she got sick a lot while they were young children, but that must have built up their immunities because all of them have stayed very well the rest of their lives. My mother died at 88 in 2015. Yes, so that was a joyful time when they finally became engaged. They got married and engaged. They got married October of 1953, had a honeymoon in Panama, and then they immediately moved to live with some Quechua Indians that my father hadn't been in exactly that same place, but he was had been writing to my mother about building a house for the two of them once they would get married. And so they first lived in a little town called Puyupungu, where Ed and Mary Lou McCulley, Ed was also killed with my dad. Uh, they had settled in there. And at first, my father had been building, during that year he was with Pete Fleming, he'd been building a mission station that was specifically going to be for Ed and Mary Lou. But then it switched around and they decided that Ed and Mary Lou would stay in Puyupungu and my father and mother would live among the Keech was in Shandia. So they were very happily married, and that was 1953. I was born in February 1955. I was 10 months old when my father was killed. So when my father and the other four men decided, had been praying and planning and kept it very secret, that they were going to go to these Alka Indians, the best way they could think of was to drop gifts, to become friends with them, to show them that they had friendly and good motives to meet them. Uh, the, the pilot, Nate Saint, who was also killed with my dad, 
I had figured out a way to drop a bucket still attached to a plane and going in a circle with the plane, the bucket would come to a standstill in the middle and um, at the vortex of the circle. And the Indians began to figure out, the Alka Indians began to figure out that these gifts that were in these buckets were for them. And they began to replace the gifts with their own gift, like a roasted monkey paw or a feathered crown, which is what they wore for special occasions like a wedding. The Indians, the um, Wyodani Indians, used to be called Alkas, were naked, completely naked. They didn't see any reason for clothing. Um, they lived in a very mild climate, though at nighttime they lived in the foothills of the Andes, so it was actually quite chilly at night. So they all had fires in their little thatched roof huts. And when my mother and I, long story short, we eventually got to go and live with the Wyodani. It was an amazing way of circumstances the Lord planned for us to be invited for the, by the Indians after they had recognized that they had done wrong by killing the five men. So in January of 1956, the five men arrive on the beach to, that is nearest the village. And um, my father had prefabricated a treehouse so that four of them could sleep during the night. And one of them would be on a watch taking turns every four hours on the beach with a gun because they did have jaguars in the jungle and they had anacondas and they did not want to kill any alcas, but they had the gun just for self-defense and to, and to, give a report from the gun that just to let them know there was, they were not going to shoot them. They would shoot up in the air if it happened. It hardly rarely happened that they had to do that. Right. But um, the Alcas eventually decided to go see them. There are three that, that met them on the beach the second night they were there, maybe the third night. And they were very friendly. There was no, there were no spears. And so the men had really felt that was the Lord's confirmation that they were supposed to be there and meet the Alcas. And eventually they hoped that all of them would come to the beach. It was probably a two or three hour walk from the little village they lived in. But on the second visit, uh, the Alcas ambushed them and speared all of the white, the five white men. And they, they had discussed for two days after the visit from the three that had come out and the three had had a nice time, though they couldn't understand each other's languages um, they'd gone back with a couple of things, I think, that the white men had given them. And they discussed whether these white men had good motives or whether they might be sneaky and, and deceitful. So the tribe, really the men, had a long discussion from Saturday through Sunday morning about whether to kill these white men or whether to leave them alone. And of course, the three who had been visiting said they were friendly but one of them it was the younger girl that said no they might be excuse me they might be cannibals so I think you need to go we think you need to go and kill them all because they might kill us and eat us first and that was totally her own made-up idea there is no cannibalism in the jungle so they didn't know anything about white people maybe they thought white people were cannibals but they had this long discussion because some of the men there were 10 men in this tribe some of them said, but they've been so kind, good to us. They didn't even have a word for kind, but they've been good to us. They brought us gifts, you know, and then the other men were saying, yeah, but that just shows they were, they're deceiving us and they're going to kill us. So that afternoon, Sunday, January 8th, 1956, all of the tribe came to the river. Uh, the women didn't appear with spears, but the men had spears and they threw many spears into the five men. 
The men, of course, did not get to witness for Christ. They did not get to share the gospel story because they didn't know the language. All they had known was what my father had learned from a from an Alka who had fled the tribe a few years earlier and had ended up on a Spanish plantation among Quechua Indians. And my father met her because of Rachel Saint, who was the sister of the pilot. And Dayuma, this woman, started sharing a few phrases or words from Alka, which actually were a little bit dis- distorted because she had learned Quechua probably when she was 13 or 14 and had kind of mixed up her Quechua with her Alka. So she had tried to help my father say, because they were going to say this out of the plane as they dropped gifts through a megaphone. They were going to say, we are your friends. We want to come see you. And then the, the, the very last day before they actually arrived on the beach, Nate Saint flew over and shouted out with the megaphone, come to see us on the Kurarai, which was the river that they were closest to. Come to see us on the Kurarai. And that was all supposed to be understood by the Alcas. But again, as Dayuma's language had kind of gotten a little mixed up, it wasn't exactly really clear with, with the Alcas. So they, and plus the, the noise of the airplane as it goes over with hearing the megaphone coming out from under the noise would, was probably challenging to the Alcas to figure out. But because they were getting gifts, that's why those three first came to kind of check them out. But they killed them all, and then later on, when Rachel and my mother and I were invited to go and live with them, it was because two Alka women had fled the tribe just like Dayuma and had said they, there was too much violence, they weren't going to live there anymore. They came and stayed with some Kichwas. My mother got invited to come meet them. And my mother had prayed and prayed and prayed ever since she was in college for these Alkas, so she had learned to love them. And my father had, of course, had the Alcas on his heart since college also. And he had even said in his journal, Lord, let me sing over the Alcas, meaning let me praise you, praise you, God, for saving them. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, didn't get to, he didn't get to share the gospel, neither did any of the five men. But, but when, the, when we got to be invited by these two women who went back to their tribe, they said, we want you to tell us we want Rachel and you to tell our tribe about God because we did badly badly by killing those men and we did not know why they were there and we shouldn't have killed them I'm just so that's, that's how we got invited to live with the Alcas right and God meant it for good you know as Satan meant it for evil God meant it for good and and how God has used this um as you just said, you and your mother were able to go back and live there, and your mother was able to write all these books and speak and share, and just the the uh, impact on the kingdom of God. That can you share a little bit about that? What you've seen come, what you've seen God do through all of this? Well, the Alcas. When they heard the gospel, and it was mainly through Dayuma at first, and of course, my mother and Rachel Saint were learning the language as they got to know Dayuma and, and as they lived among the Alcas, um, it was interesting how simply they accepted this truth. They knew there was a creator. They already knew that, and they already had some of his law in their hearts. One of their laws was a man does not steal another man's wife. A man, we, nobody should lie, that they knew that lying was wrong. They knew that stealing was wrong. But they often, 
they they said they killed because sometimes it was necessary. Well, it was only because they didn't know who lived around them and they were afraid. Mm-hmm. And that's why they killed. They they also killed among their own people, which anthropologists later said when this tribe began to be studied by anthropologists, it was the fastest shrinking tribe in the world. So there are maybe, uh, I think I read in National Geographic, there's actually January 9th of 2013, there's an article about the Ecuadorian Amazon and the Indians that still live there. And some of them are still very hostile to the outside world. But this particular group that we lived with, the Wyodani, uh, and lived in this little settlement that they called Tiwanu, they seemed to accept the gospel. They seemed to say, we didn't know he sent his son to save us, to help us not to do badly, badly. They didn't have a word for sin. They didn't have a word for very. So they couldn't say we did very badly. So um, they all were apologetic and sad that they had killed my mother's husband and Rachel Saint's brother and the other three men. Um, But, you know, they took life very matter-of-factly and simply. Um, They did not have a huge intellectual capacity. So even when they started to learn much later, back in the 80s, they started to learn to read. Some of the older Alcas just were not interested in reading, and their New Testament had been published in their language sometime in the early 80s. And uh, it was the young people that were starting to go to schools that the Ecuadorian government put in the jungle. And so the young people were reading, but the older people just, they didn't see the necessity for reading. They were glad that they had God's word in in their language and they would hold it up to show people, but they didn't necessarily think it was, I think it was just too out of their, it, it was not understandable to them that you would read these little markings on pages, you know, they just never had any pages of any kind. So, um, of course the younger people now going to school and understand that, but my mother started teaching me, um, first grade when I was five and we lived still in the house with no walls that they had built us when we arrived. We arrived in October of 1953 and I immediately picked up the language because a little girl, a little child will pick up another language very easily if they're around the kids all the time which I was, I was around them all the time. And so anyway, we, the, the impact that it made was simply that they decided to be a peaceful tribe and not to kill anymore. And they were very loving and hospitable to us. Um, they were kind when they had extra food, they definitely wanted us to try their food and eat it. Um, we sometimes usually, but not every week would have a plane drop a parachute uh, with a basket of mail and food, sometimes a piece of meat and some vegetables, but sometimes the plane couldn't come because of the weather. So sometimes we were living on just fish or just monkey meat because that's what the Alcas got the most of. Uh, But I learned to eat all kinds of interesting things, including flying ants and sucked on monkey skulls and fish skulls. And, you know, they didn't have any fat in their diet. They didn't know what butter was. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the fat that they had was in the brains of the fish and the monkey. Um, I, I, but when you say the huge impact, it, yes, they became basically a Christian tribe. My mother could never say when people would write to her and say, how many souls have you saved? She did not believe that was her job at all to save souls. She believed it was to present Christ's love to them by her own behavior, to love them, respect them as people. But, um, 
she she said, I can't answer how many souls. It seems that all of the Alkas have become Christians in the Waodani now. But we, you know, we don't, only God knows their hearts. So they were not cruel to us. They could be pr- pretty cruel to each other, not physically, but in just laughing at each other and um, making fun of each other. Somebody would slide down a bank by mistake and the whole tribe would be in an uproar of laughter. There were only 40 people, 40 people of that group that we moved in to live with. And there were only 10 men. So the rest, of course, were women and children. The rest of the men had been killed off who were the husbands of those women. But it's it's been, Steve Saint is the one that has done the most um, really serious talking with them about how they need to understand the outside world and they need to be able to use money because up, of course, until we lived with them and later, they didn't use money. Of course, they didn't need to, and they didn't know anything about the outside world. So it's it's wonderful that there are Christians there now. And my little playmate, Pimenta, I played with all the time. And his mother was my mother's helper, and she would do some cooking for my mother. And uh, Pimenta and I played, but he always seemed to be a fussy little kind of whiny child. And the whole tribe would laugh at his fussiness. Nobody felt sorry for themselves in this tribe. You just laughed at yourself. You did not make a big deal of <laughs> having any troubles. But he seemed to be whiny, and my mother would teach him to say something without whining. <laughs> and um, I did learn the Alka language, though I've forgotten it. They say if you learn a language before you're 10 and you don't keep on speaking it, you don't remember it. I can give you a couple of funny words in Alka. Um, and the way they sang, but I don't know that that's answering your question. Oh, yes. I'd love to hear a couple words. Okay. The word for no is you purse your lips together tight and then pull in with air. And that's their no. And their word for yes was. (laughs) So you can imagine trying to write down words like that. My mother and Rachel had to figure out how to write they call them phonemes, how to write the sounds down because they had no written language. And, um, and then they sang like this. And they would go on and on and on and on with no change at all in their words until my mother counted one time 70 different times they sang the same phrase. And they never would sing other notes. My mother actually tried to teach them. She translated Jesus Loves Me into their language. And she tried to teach them to sing it to our tune. And they just laughed at her. They said, you sound like birds. We can't sing like that. (laughs) The Lord has been so faithful. And what a beautiful heritage and legacy of faith that you have. And I just really appreciate how you've shared this story with us today. I appreciate the work that you put into this beautiful new book devotedly and thank you uh, i i wonder kind of in closing this if you might have um, a favorite quote from your mom and dad or something along those lines yes yeah, sure my when my mother said goodbye to my dad as she was as he was about to go to the alcas she said what will i do if you don't come back and my father said teach the believers darling teach the believers. And that is what she did the rest of her life. She taught the believers among the Kichwas for 
about two years before we moved to live with the Alcas. And then she taught the believers what she could teach them among the Alcas. So did Rachel. Rachel lived the rest of her life with the Alcas. I should say Wyodani. They really want to be called Wyodani. Um, but, but then my mother wrote these books that I think taught believers and her speaking was amazing. If you, if anybody has ever wanted to hear her speak, you can find her on Gateway to Joy in Back to the Bible Network, BBN. I'm sorry, that's not, that's not Back to the Bible. It's Bible Broadcasting Network is what the station, uh, the, the station that carries BBN is where you can find it. You can also download, download her talks, Gateway to Joy. She did that for 12 years and she spoke all over the world. She was a very strong disciple of Christ. And, and people might read this book and think this, this is impossible. This couple could not have done this. And, you know, in their own flesh and heart, they were weak. And yet they knew that the Lord could help them to endure and to be obedient. And they did. They were obedient to him because my father did not know until the last, um, let's see. Well, the year before they got married, October 53, and it was December of 53 when my mother was with the other group of Indians that he suddenly realized, okay, I know that I'm supposed to marry her because I need a wife here, especially to work with the women as well as just helping me in this work. Well, um, I just praise the Lord with you, Val, for the faithfulness of God in your family. And once again, thank you so much for sharing with us today on the podcast. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. I would, I would suggest to anybody to read at least my mother's first three books, which were Shadow of the Almighty. And the first one was Through Gates of Splendor, which has still been in print since 1958. And then Shadow of the Almighty is the biography of my dad. And then she wrote uh, The Savage, My Kinsman, which is not in print anymore, but it's a beautiful book of black and white pictures of, of our, live, our live life along with the Alka Indians. And then uh, she wrote many books, almost 30 books altogether. So I just love all of her books. I just finished her book called Discipline, The Glad Surrender, which is a wonderful book. And they're probably going to retitle it to repackage and sell again. But I think the title itself is very good. I think my mother was an excellent writer and she chose some very good titles. <laughs> Where can people find these books? Well, mostly Amazon. Um, it, the, the publishers that have her books are Baker, Ravel, and HarperCollins. But I would say you can also find secondhand books that are, you know, not in print anymore on any secondhand website, secondhand book website. So I would highly recommend them. They are excellent, excellent books. And in this day of people not reading books anymore, I think it's it's a lost art and it needs to be done. So even getting through devotedly for my husband and me has been a challenge. Of course, we have a big family that's texting us all the time. <laughs> and so reading a book from cover to cover has been very challenging. So we're reading devotedly out loud to, at least I'm reading it to him. And uh, he had never read it while I was working on it. So I think just going back over my mother's journals, my father's journals and their letters is very moving, very moving. Absolutely. Well, I encourage the listeners to check those books out. Just the whole library of, uh, what did you say, around 30 books? Yes, 
Mm-hmm. Yes, and and there will be rich truths there to encourage your hearts. Well, Valerie, may the Lord bless you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you, Ruth, and your, as you continue to encourage mothers and women. Thank you. Okay, ladies, what a special joy it was to hear the story from Val about how the Lord guided her parents and has used her family to promote His kingdom and His righteousness. I strongly encourage you to check out Val's book, Devotedly. It is full of inspiration and is a beautiful story of what God can do through those whose hearts are fully devoted to Him. I also encourage you to check out the many books from her mother, Elizabeth Elliott. I have several on my shelves, and they are true treasures. I will leave some links in the show notes where you can find some of these resources. Thank you, ladies, for listening today. And please come back next week as Val and I have a discussion on biblical mothering. Until then, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Goodbye. Goodbye.